This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast, and today I'm excited to welcome Dr. Allie Tickton to the episode. Now, Dr. Allie is an occupational therapist. She has got her clinical doctorate degree in occupational therapy. And if you don't exactly know what occupational therapy is or why we use it, that's okay. We're going to get to that in the episode. But Dr. Allie really specializes in working with children and their sensory needs. Now, we all have senses and a sensory system and is going to blow your mind that we don't only have just five. And Allie helps us to understand why our senses and our sensory system is so important and how we can help to develop and engage our children's sensory systems through play. And you guys are in for a treat. I learned so much in this episode. It's so helpful and powerful. You guys are going to love it. Before diving in, let's get to the review of the week. This iTunes review comes from That Single Girl. The title is Great Information. Erica does an amazing job keeping things real and isn't afraid to address real issues moms face. Love this podcast. Subscribe. Thank you so much for these reviews. As I've always told you guys, they are life for me. They are the nuggets of feedback that I get that I know I'm, you know, this podcast and the work I'm putting in is making a difference and that it's really helping you guys feel seen, heard, and understood. So I appreciate that you take the time to leave them for me. And let's hear from Dr. Allie. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Allie, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. I've been looking forward to picking your brain since we've touched base, and this is going to be a powerful episode for for people. I just can't wait. I'm so excited as well. Thank you for having me. So I don't even have a full grasp on what an occupational therapist does. So I understand that you specialize in pediatrics and, and working with children, and specifically in more of those behavioral kind of neurodevelopmental disorders and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, can you break it down for us? What is your profession? What does it include? Totally. Yeah, I actually specialize in something called sensory integration. And sensory integration is actually something that impacts every human, whether typical developing or non-typical developing. And what it is, it's essentially, it's essentially our ability to take in the information around us. So if I hear a bird chirp or a fire alarm, I'm going to distinguish bird chirp might be calming to me. A fire alarm may mean I need to start moving. Take that information into my body. I'm then going to, in my brain, translate it and come out with a response. So my response would be like, oh, I'm going to sit here and listen to this bird or, oh, wow, I'm going to get up now and move. And so we have more than five senses, which most people don't know. But really, yeah. Yeah. And we can kind of go into that. But I always say it's so funny to me that, you know, through childhood, we only teach these five senses when we really have eight senses. And no one knows about our eight senses and how they impact us. And the truth is, our sensory system is really like the roots to our tree. It's involved in every single thing that we do. It's how children learn about their body and about their environment. We find out about the world all through our senses, especially when we start really, really, when we're first born, when we're little. And it's so important that we're able to produce an accurate response based off of the sensory information that we get. And so that's really what I do is I really work on the sensory system and my passion 
is that all parents will really understand that, wow, we have eight senses and it's so important to engage the sensory system from the time your baby comes home from the hospital all the way through childhood. And even as adults, it's important that we engage our sensory system. And so that's kind of what I do and what my passion is. Can I just say, like, we're a couple of minutes into this interview and my mind is already blown. Like, there are eight senses, Allie. Allie. I know. Like, it's break wild? it down for me. Like, I work, okay. And I haven't told this story much, like, on the podcast because it's not particularly relevant to what I speak about usually. But I work in a developmental psychology practice. So we specialize in working with children up to adolescence. And then I typically am the one that works with moms and, and the family structure and the parents. But we have, like, we see children day in and day out all the time for all sorts of behavioral and sort of learning and developmental needs. Mm-hmm. And like, how, why do I feel like this is the first time I'm hearing that there are eight senses, Allie? Tell me why, <laughs> because I have to tell you my life's mission is to make sure that everyone knows there's eight. And I always say like, by the time I retire, which is hopefully never because I love what I do, but by the time I'm much, much older, I hope that everyone's going to understand, wow, we have eight senses. And those other three senses are just as important as the five that we know. And I'll kind of, is it cool if I jump into what those oh other my gosh. are? I'm like on the edge of my seat. I need to know. Like I need to awesome. know what they are. Let's do it then. So the first kind of hidden sense, as I like to call them in a lot of OTs, we refer to them as our hidden senses, is the vestibular sense. And a lot of people have heard of their vestibular system. They've heard of like vertigo and they kind of know it involved it's involved in balance, but they don't really know what it is. And it's sensed in our inner ear and it does a lot of things. But one of the big things is our relationship with gravity. And that kind of sounds silly. Like what is our relationship with gravity? Well, our relationship with gravity relates directly with how we relate to space. So if I'm really have a great relationship with gravity, I'm going to be really confident. And when I go to the park, I'm going to jump right in. I'm going to be a leader. So it goes directly to our social emotional health and how we perceive our own body and ourself. It also really has a big impact on our regulation. And vestibular input is anything that's like big movement or spinning because in your inner ear, you have these semicircular canals. And when they move, it tells us this is the position of my head in relation to gravity. So that's why it also impacts our balance. Interestingly, our vestibular system also does something that kind of helps our eyes, not kind of does, help our eye position during motion. So if you think of like a ballet dancer who finds a spot and they spin and they're able to do those turns, but they have their spot that they look at. We also need that same thing when we're reading, when we're looking up and down and copying from a board or reading side to side, we have to be able to steady the eye while our head is moving. And that's something that our vestibular system does as well. It also impacts our overall coordination and muscle tone. It's a super, super important system and something that we want to start exercising immediately kind of when a baby's born. So interesting. So interesting. So I think about like I have three boys and Mm -hmm. they're um, almost five. One just turned three and one is one and a half. And I think about my one son, my oldest son, he particularly does this when he's overtired, but he just like will spin and he will just do these things, you know, but like, and have the confidence to do the jumping and do all the climbing and do the things that sense has to be so involved and so so developed. developed. Yeah, Yeah. you're hundred percent right. And it's interesting because how we develop this sense starts through movement when we're really, really young and that's why it's so important, so passionate about this. And I talk about it often, but that babies get the chance to explore and not just babies, but kids too. When we're sitting on screens or um, we put our babies nowadays in a lot of pieces of equipment, like the bumbo and different things, Mm -hmm. then a child isn't actually engaging with their environment through their sensory system. So that's something that we really, really look at. And There's two other really important senses. And the other one is the proprioceptive sense. And this sense is like a little bit less known, I would say. And 
in our, we have in our two bones, between our two bones, we have a joint. And in that joint, there's some different receptors and that these are proprioceptive receptors. And the proprioceptive system tells us where we are in space. So it's, the input is any force against your muscle. And I always think, I always say this, but think like CrossFit. CrossFit is a ton of proprioceptive input. When you're lifting the heavy things, it's a lot of force against your muscle. And so that is really what proprioceptive input is. And it can be very, very, very calming. Mm-hmm. And it's an amazing, amazing input. And we, you know, are turning to weighted blankets and all these different things. Sometimes you'll hear of in school, kids will have weighted vests. Yes, yes. And those are supposed to be calming. The actual proprioceptive input is when the child's moving against that weighted vest. So the child's moving and wearing the weighted vest, that's the proprioceptive input. And it's a modulator. It really modulates our vestibular system and many of our other senses. So it has a very calming input while helping us understand where we are in space. So if we do not have, you know, if we struggle with our proprioceptive sense, then we may struggle about where we are in space and may look a little more clumsy. And that's Mm -hmm. another thing we need to work on. So yeah. And I've actually, so we've, we've like, this is one that I'm actually a little bit more familiar with because we do work with some clients that are on the spectrum or mm-hmm. have um, like sensory sensitivities and things like that. Uh, using like a lot of weighted blankets or using like an exercise ball and kind of rolling back and forth some weight on them or having them even like lift and carry heavy things like laundry baskets and stuff. Are those right. all related? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So and- Go ahead. It's interesting with my sons, like I'm just drawing on my own experience with the kids here. Like, so I have one son who is, who is like hyper sort of sensitive to pain. We get like a big reaction out of mm-hmm. him with like a blister on his foot type of thing, right? Really sensitive to it. And then I've got another son, my middle son. This guy, you could like slap him in the face and he would just stare you down. Like he does not, like his pain tolerance. Not that I've ever done that, obviously, but you know what I mean? Like he's just like, he will like stare his brothers down and he holds his ground and he's just like going to be my football player. You know what I mean? Like he's really rough and tumble. Right. He's really like, he likes tight squeezes. He likes that more like rough play. Two completely different I would say like scales in this particular and it's sense. their different sensory system. And, you know, I think I may have said before that the receptors in our bones, it's in our muscle. So our muscle, it's the feedback of our muscles that really tell us this is where we are in space. So that is kind of what we're talking about. So your one son, he's needing a lot more proprioceptive input and it probably calms him. And what you said, it's so interesting that he's rough and tumble because what I'll see is a child who loves like big crashes, big crashes. And in school, the teacher is saying things like, no, Johnny, no, no, no. What does Johnny feel? Johnny starts to feel like, wait, my body needs this, but I'm getting in trouble for this. That doesn't make, that, that doesn't make sense in my brain. So what if we shift that language and we understand the sensory system and we say, Johnny, I can see that that feels really good on your body. Yeah. But squeezing Kate to get that feeling on your body doesn't (laughs) feel good to Kate. That's not okay. But why don't we take this weighted ball and roll it on your legs and that'll feel good on your body and it's okay to Kate. So shifting that. Total goosebumps just talking about this, I have to say, because it makes me understand my second son so much more because he needs that. And he does, he's totally the kid like out of the brothers right now. And he's also only three. So he's kind of in that impulsive range, but he's totally more likely to be hands-on. Right. Right. Like my older son at school, he's never had any hands on problems, but like my middle son tends to be more impulsive. And like I said, like rough and tumble gets right in there, kind of bull in a china shop. Yes. So it makes so much more sense that, you know, this is his sensory system and this is how he's kind of experiencing and living in the world. Right. And it's so funny you say that bullet in China shop because that's really, we talk about that. We use that phrase a lot when we're talking about our sensory kids. But the big thing I always say is like, you know, look at your son. He's typically developing. We all have such a different range of sensory processing. And 
there is no, I I don't like the word normal per se, because Mm -hmm. we're all different in ranges of coordination and what our sensory system needs. But the truth is, if you put me in a room with 90 people, I bet I could point out a sensory thing for each person because we all have our things that make us tick. If you watch me sitting in a meeting, my hands, I keep a hair clip and I'm constantly playing with the hair clip because that's what my sensory system needs. I seek a lot of probe and I like the pressure of like clipping the hair clip on my fingers. So we all have our different things and look at me, I'm fully, you know, functional, but that's what my sensory system needs. So I really have a goal of shifting the language of helping teachers, one, parents, two, to really understand that some of these things that we're calling behaviors a child really needs for their sensory system. And if we can help a child to understand their own body young, think of how what a big impact that's going to have on their own self-esteem and how they relate to themselves and others if they know just what their body needs and they can advocate for themselves. Yeah. It's so, it's so powerful. I'm loving this. I'm loving this so much. So there's, there's one more sense and then we're going to like, we're going to dive into some ways that we can use play to kind of help with these things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. So the other sense is interioception and it's essentially our internal receptors that tells us kind of about what's going on inside. Am I hungry? Do I need to go to the bathroom? What's inside. And we talk about this a lot with potty training, you know, your kid's age is Mm. do I have to go to the bathroom? We all have a different sense with it. And so this is another important one. And this interioception is especially less talked about. And even, you know, when I went to OT school, it was a lot less talked about. Um, But now it's starting to come up a little bit more and we're all starting to learn about it a lot more, including myself. So it's really interesting how it relates to all these different things that we talk about that are so important because it is important that we understand how we feel inside our body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like fascinated. I'm still on the fact that there are eight senses. Like my, it's taking me a minute to catch up. Like I'm, I'm just blown away. This is amazing. So you had said that Play is really, so from a very, very young age, babies come out and we can be engaging their their sensory systems and in a playful way that helps them to develop. Is that what I understand? You got it. Yeah. So play really starts from birth. And I always get parents ask me, well, when do I start sensory play? And the other thing I hear is sensory is a big buzzword right now. And people are like, I get so many moms, they're like, okay, I have 12 rice bins in my house and a bean bin <laughs> and a popcorn bin. We do all the sensory play. And then- I'm guilty. <laughs> I am so guilty of all the different bins. It's so true. Yeah. And the bins are amazing. I'm not taking anything about the bins. We need the bins. I use the bins. We have them. But that's just our tactile sense. We're missing all of the other senses. True sensory play is all of our senses. We need all eight. So all the way from birth through childhood, how do we start at birth? Tummy time, which is really our most important thing. What we know is that with every new experience, a child's brain is creating new connections that they can then use later in life. And that's why sensory play is so important. And we need to give kids the opportunity to get on the floor. So when they're a baby, tummy time is so important. And as they get older, letting them explore. So at six months, putting them in the grass or in the sand and kind of letting them explore that and their environment around them rather than going in a bouncy Mm. or um, I'm like the walker, you know, the walkers jumping seat. It's so easy to put a baby in the walker jumping seat. And listen, I get it. Sometimes you have to shower. (laughs) sometimes it's like you know maybe a good thing to do right (laughs) but it's also important to let our babies really explore and get messy and when I was growing up we did so much more of that and I grew up in the middle of the midwest where we had massive yards and I'm not exaggerating at all we didn't wear shoes all summer long we were like outside I remember the neighborhood boys used to catch toads And the girls, we were always kind of running in the grass, getting dirty, rollerblading, biking, and we were developing our sensory system. We don't see that anymore in babies. No, it takes conscious effort to do that type of 
um, like open-ended, imaginative, explorative type of play. And I have a whole other episode on like open-ended play and fostering independent play. Right. So much to do with like, you know, open-ended toys or open-ended experiences where we just don't do the work of play for our children. And it takes a conscious effort and leaving the space open enough in terms of like not always filling totally. and and like, you know, entertaining, but leaving some boredom for kids to kind of create some of those experiences some for themselves. Boredom to explore our creativity, imagination, we call ideation. These, okay. This idea of I can come up with my own thing. I can build a fort. And what you said about the open-ended toys, I think is so important. We have so many toys out there that play for our kids. Totally. So we have toy rooms filled with these light up toys that kids love. They love the light up toys. I'm not taking it away. They don't. The problem is if the, if the duck quacks for me, then I don't need to pretend to be the duck and I don't need to quack because the duck is doing it for me. Right. Whereas when I have a wood toy and we actually just launched our own toy line and we are doing this kind of all wood, really nice toys that are designed very nicely so that kids can actually use their imagination and play. What happens when I have a wood, a wood monkey that can pair with any other wood toy that I have in my house? Now I'm creating a big play scheme and I'm using my imagination. So later on in life, when I'm in college and need to develop something for some sort of science competition or a startup competition, I use that same skill that I used when I was playing and now applying it to life. And I always use this example. I was a huge, I played all the time when I was little. I almost exclusively played with dolls. I was always Mm. mommy playing with baby teacher, constantly dolls. Like our entire downstairs was dolls. I found my passion working with kids and what I was supposed to do in life as a child playing with dolls. If I was on a screen and I had access to all of these toys that played for me, I don't know if I would have found this massive passion of mine. Yeah. Yeah. Can you help draw the connection in my mind? Cause I'm really like, I'm really searching here in my own mind to draw it together. Like, so with play, Mm-hmm. And and uh, leaving open-ended space for this imaginative, engaged play, how does that develop our senses? Amazing question. So when we're playing very open-ended, we're moving our body and we're really exploring using all eight of our senses. When I'm building a fort out of blankets, I'm using motor planning, right? Because I'm trying to figure out how do I build this for? I'm using proprioceptive input. I'm pulling the blankets. I'm jumping off the couch. I'm jumping on the couch, doing all these different things. So I'm actually using my senses to build this fort that I'm then going to play in. And then maybe in the fort, I'm using some sort of noise or texture, all these different things. I'm actually using my senses. Those are all creating connections in my brain. And an easy one to think about is the park. Because when you're at the park, you're on the swings, you're jumping down, you're playing in the sand. All of those things are building connections in our brains that we can use later in life. I love that. I, thank you for making that connection. I'm like, I'm so close to mm-hmm. really grasping it. And and I see it now so much more clearly. I'm like, so I've got three boys and I mean, all kids can climb the walls. I feel like maybe boys, I don't know. I only have boys, but man, they are just wild. And so we're in the middle of a winter here in Toronto. It is minus 30 degrees Celsius today. We're under wow. like a wind chill warning. It is frigid. You can't be outside for like, you know, more than a couple of minutes. And so how do you feel that I'm sitting here looking out the window at a 70 degree day? Like I'm bitter, but you know what? I'm going to be in LA in six weeks. So I'm so excited. So like, that's my mini vacation in my mind. I'm just like, just make it six more weeks and then I'll be in the palm trees. But I know, but so this is like a major issue for managing my boys, like sensory, like input, output, all the things, because man, they just go stir crazy. 
So I got a, I actually had like partnered with a, uh, a brand and I got this big wooden climber for our playroom downstairs. And it's kind of like a, like a, those pickler. I was going to say, is it a pickler? I love, love, it's love picklers. Very similar. Very, very similar. Um, you can climb up and over the top and down the other side and it's got like a rope ladder. It's got like a wooden slide. Um, so it's, it's a little bit bigger than the, than the triangles. It's a little bit more of like a climbing structure mm-hmm. and, um, it has saved my life this winter. We'll go downstairs and they will climb over and they will jump and they will swing and then they'll slide cars down the slide and then they'll turn it into a fort and they'll put a blanket over the top. And then it's a restaurant and they're like cooking with the kitchen. And I'm like, if I did not have this thing for them to climb and jump and, you know, they'd be like, well, they quite literally have, and this is why I got it, climb the bookshelves and jump off the bookshelves and stuff because they just need to they get need out. the sensory input. They really, really do. And then in the winter, in minus 30 degrees Celsius, it's not always feasible to be like out at the park or so I'm having to really like recognize that that's a need of theirs and to feed it in like healthy ways that I feel like safe and comfortable with, like, you know, in the home. Yeah. And it's been a lifesaver to do that. And like, we got one of those like wobble, those like balance boards, mm-hmm. the wooden balance boards and things like that as well, just to, to like invite them to move in a way that is like safe and not destructive in the house. And they, they gravitate towards it. And there's not a day that we go down in the playroom that they are not all over that climber. Like that's all, that's all they do down there, you know? Totally. And you know, you don't even, you're so lucky to have this, what sounds like amazing climber in LA. We're so lucky we have this amazing weather, but for anyone who's in New York city in a tiny apartment with no room for a climber, there's still so many other ways to get sensory input in just a tiny little space. The oh, couch- break it down for us, please. <laughs> I need to know. Um, the couch in your bed are your biggest tools. And I'm maybe not a parent's favorite when I say, let a child jump on their bed, do it safely if they need. There's something called a nugget. It's just kind of like big crash cushion type things that they can explore in different ways, anything that they can do to kind of really get that input out. So maybe they're jumping, jumping on their bed and then crashing onto a crash cushion that you put, you know, at the end of the bed, anything, obviously you need to keep them very safe and watch them or a little scooter board. A tiny scooter board can go right under the bed. You can get them on Amazon and just allowing them to scooter all around the house or using the the tiny, even the tiniest apartment, the tiniest apartment sometimes is best to do this is building an obstacle course through it. How do you get your little ones to help you get the laundry from the bedroom to the washing machine without touching? I love that. The couch yeah. or something like that and kind of yeah. make them build that course to do that. Or how do they get from the couch to the kitchen where their snack is waiting for them without touching the floor? What are they going to use? And getting really, really silly. There's little things like an office chair you can use. There's so many different things. I always say, you know, we all live via online shopping and get a lot of boxes nowadays. What if that box is a rocket? What if we paint that box? What are, how many things can we do with that one little box? So it's getting really, really creative and you don't need a big space. So if you're in New York City and trapped in the middle of the winter, nowhere to go and you have a tiny flat, you can still provide your child sensory input. Yeah, I love that. Or I've even seen like in hallways, um, even at schools or things they've done that like, dude, like put little, we use painter's tape for a lot of things. Uh Painter's tape like, you know, little spots that they have to like hop down the hallway on or, you know, create little obstacle courses that way or hopscotch down the hall or something like that, right? Like just thinking about ways to let that energy out in a fun and creative way. I love that so much. Those are such practical tools. And then that whole time we're engaging our sensory system. And that is just such an important piece because as the more we engage our sensory system, the more our body understands, builds connections that we can use later. And so I think all of these things are really, really important, no matter how much space you have or where you're at. So you've referenced a few times that in play and in these early childhood experiences that we're learning to do these things, they impact us later in life. 
Mm-hmm. Can you unpack that for me a little bit? Like how do they influence us later on? Great question. Yeah. So our sensory system, what we know is getting an adequate amount of input really helps our you know, the obvious one is motor abilities, right? Because it directly relates to our coordination. Our vestibular system is our balance, proprioceptive system, where we are in space, our relationship with gravity is our vestibular system, all these things, our muscle tone. So in the more forward way, we see, okay, coordination directly. Coordination relates to self-esteem. What we what people don't know as much is that it also impacts our language. And our overall cognition, as well as our fine motor skills. So essentially, all of our school skills are impacted directly by our sensory system. Wow. Yeah. And, and I see like you had said the uh, like soci- socio-emotional connection earlier on in the, in the interview. And I see exactly what you mean, because if we don't have that well kind of balanced and developed system, then we might lack confidence like in sports compared to our peers or things that just start to kind of maybe set us apart from our peers or I don't know. It's such an interesting like confidence is impacted, all of those things. Or how to play. I will get kiddos sometimes who really struggle in their own body. And if they struggle in their own body, they'll often become very rigid. Hmm. Or what we'll see is they won't know how to jump into play. So if all the boys are playing dragons, and I'm saying this because I just watched this happen this week, that there's a group of little boys, they're playing dragons, and kids don't go up to another kid and say, can I play with you? They just jump right in if you watch them. And and their roles change quick. All of a sudden, they're dragons, and then there's a fireball, and then there's a dragon keeper and everything changes so quick and it requires a great sense of kind of where a child is in space and understanding of their body and their motor planning to be able to keep up with that game. And if a child doesn't have that, they can't jump into the play and keep up with the game. What happens when they can't jump into the play, a lot of different things can happen. Maybe they get upset and get behavioral, possibly violent, possibly they retreat. And are completely shut down. Regardless, it doesn't feel good. And no one wants to see their child struggle making friends and with play or any of that. Sometimes our kiddos who struggle with play will become very rigid. And so they'll dominate the play. They'll say, no, I'm the king. You're this, you're that. And when someone wants to change how that play is done, they're not open to it. The other Mm. kids get upset. So all of this has a massive impact on our social emotional abilities. One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments. Researching doctors, reading reviews, making phone calls to book appointments, it's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com momwell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com momwell. ZocDoc.com momwell. Mealtime with kids can be stressful, but with Factors Delicious ready-to-eat meals, it can be a lot easier. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. No worrying about ingredients and nutrition, no prep, no mess, and no cooking while wrangling toddlers. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or vegan and veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? 
Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Factor can even be tailored to your schedule. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Take the stress out of meals with Factor. Head to factormeals.com slash momwell50 and use code momwell50 to get 50% off your first box. Want to get smarter about your health but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics, but taking the time to research these is exhausting, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. And I think about, again, like my middle one, who's more of like that kind of bull in a china shop. He, like when he wants to join in with his brother, and again, he's only three, he's still learning and we're like working with him to learn the beha- the behavioral piece of it, but he will just like go in and destroy the place, you know? Right. Like if he can't figure out how to play, like, cause his brother will play in a way that's maybe more advanced than him or doesn't, he doesn't have the vocabulary yet to play with. He'll just go and level the place. Like, and so we work on him to use his words to say like, you know, can, can I break that? Or when, can you tell me when I can break it? Or how can I join you? Like, how can I play? You know, or you can say like, can I play with you? You can just use your words and ask him, you know? Um, yeah, it's so interesting. It's like, so interesting what you're saying yeah. because that is what we see so often is kids will go in and they will be the child that knocks down the elaborate yeah. tower that four kids just built in preschool. Then oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. They get upset. But what if we shift that to helping the child understand, okay, I actually am feeling that I want to knock this tower over because I want to play but I don't quite know how to get in. So what if we teach a child little ways, little cues to visualize and see to help them enter into play and understand how they can relate to that play and how to jump in. And that's what I think, you know, we really want all kids to understand is how do I play? And all adults, right? As adults, we're all seeking connection. We need a great sense of who we are to be able to authentically receive that connection Mm. in a way that feels good for us. Our kids need that too. So they need to really understand this is who I am in my body. This is what my body can do. Yeah. So with the little cues, are you talking about like reading those kind of like social norms and and ways to to ask to join the play or little things to do? Yeah. Little things to do. Or even if they struggle with motor planning will help them understand a way to join the game in a way that their body can do it. So maybe they can't climb up the rock wall the way the other kids do. But if the kids are playing balls with on the rock wall, is there another way that that child can be involved and can say, I'm going to do this in this game, even though they can't necessarily perform the activity that the other kids are doing? I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Yeah. 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 And with my second, what we've done is like have him ask to join um, my older son and then they will build the tower together and then he'll ask if he can destroy it. And and I'm a big um, sort of believer in like I need to give him space to destroy things. He very much enjoys it. So we'll do like invitations to destroy or like build these towers just so we can rip them down and stuff. Um, Just sort of recognizing that that's a need of his and he really just wants to get all in there, right? That's incredible. And that is exactly, you know, we have to allow kids to explore their own sensory system. And that's what he needs for for his body. And that's okay. But you're right, teaching him the right time and right way to get it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So one thing that comes up a lot when I'm working with moms and kind of managing their littles is 
kind of understanding if their kid is highly sensitive or um, what like overstimulation or kind of sensory challenges might look like in a toddler preschooler Mm -hmm. age? Great question. So some kids have trouble effectively and efficiently processing sensory input in their environment. So they become what we call overstimulated. We also use the word dysregulation, and it can look many different ways, from a massive tantrum to a child who moves. And I always describe kind of like a tennis ball, right? Like thing to thing to thing to thing, not necessarily sitting and playing with one toy, kind of looks uncomfortable in their body. It can look like a child covering their ears or entering a state of essentially fight or flight. That's really what dysregulation is. Hmm. And so if you think of it, when you're in fight or flight, it's hard to respond in a great way. And I always use this example that if you're at the airport with your husband and you guys are just about to board a flight to Australia and you realize you can't find your passport, you need that passport to get into Australia. And then your husband looks at you and says, do you think Vegemite will be good? How are you going to respond to that question? It's not going to be, no, I've heard it's not good. It's going to be like, I don't care right now. I can't find my password, you know? Yeah. And that is the state that some of our kids are in when all of the sensory input is too much for them and they're not Mm. effectively processing it. So all of a sudden a kid bumps them on accident. What might they do? Bite that child, push that child, Mm. throw something, have this massive tantrum. One little thing goes wrong at the ice cream store, their favorite ice cream sold out. Forget about it. The whole rest of the day, maybe a screaming meltdown. Mm-hmm. That's what dysregulation, overstimulation may look like. What it might also look like is a child who someone said something to them. What do they do? They retreat to the corner and completely shut down. And that child, I find, often will get ignored by, you know, kind of get overlooked by teachers yeah. and the support environment because they appear to be so well behaved. And it's not disruptive to the teachers or the environment. Mm -hmm. But when you really look at that child, they're dysregulated and they also need support. And so that's kind of what overstimulation can look like that. And when a child is in this state, we need to help them become more regulated. And sometimes that means let's pull away from the input. If we're in a really loud birthday party and that's too much, let's go take a break in a quiet area, let our nervous system calm down, and then figure out a way to slowly re-enter. That's really interesting. So like I know I've been with moms at playgroups and, you know, even with my own kids, I've seen like, let's say we go to the zoo And a lot of the kids can kind of like climatize to the changes in routine and being there and all the people and things going on. And then, you know, uh, I have a friend who her son had a really, really hard time. We would go to these group events and he would just melt down every single time we were kind of in this group environment, right? Mm -hmm. So I think she recognized in those moments that overstimulation was happening. But then it's kind of like, what do parents do? What do parents do with that? Is this where they seek help by like an OT or a therapist? Or are there some things that they can do kind of in that moment when this um, overstimulation or dysregulation has occurred? Great question. First, I think and I always say this, we all get overstimulated at times. We yeah. all hit fight or flight. If it's, happening, if it's happening regularly, of course, at that point, definitely go and reach out for help. But what you can do right in the moment, the first thing is always to remove, help your child, remove your child from the input if possible. It's not always possible, but if mm. that's possible, heavy work. So remember we talked about the proprioceptive system. That tends to really help our body calm. I tend to try to find what I call a safe space. So okay. a more cozy, smaller environment with very minimal input to let the nervous system kind of calm down. The other thing that I see a lot of parents, you know, do is sometimes in these massive, big meltdowns, you want to talk to your child a lot, right? Mm. Here, try this, talk, talk. But every time you're talking and talking, you're adding more input every time you're saying their name. So be there physically and support them and be in it with them emotionally, Mm. but don't necessarily talk to them. So give them the tools they need and 
you know, what I will always say to a child is I see you're really upset. I'm here for you. And if you need a hug or anything, I'm here, but I'm not going to talk to you right now. I'm going to help, but I want to help your body calm. So mm. Be there emotionally, support the child. And we want to kind of ride it out with them, give them the tools. Sometimes I'll just place a heavy blanket or something or a heavy ball or, or their lovey, something kind of in their vicinity, but I'll never hand it directly to them. Mm. It's for them to try and reach. It's now in their vicinity. They can reach and get it and help them calm, try to remove them and get them in a place that's more of a calming environment with little stimulation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that this is where like co-regulation kind of comes into play with parent too, right? Right. Like in those moments when me as mom, like I'm at the zoo and my kid decides to throw a fit, you better believe my anxiety goes through the roof, right? Yeah. So I need to like, and then I'm going to like, shh, come down, whatever, like act out of my own anxiety. So I think that it's so important for co-regulation when we're in these situations with our littles to learn how to regulate ourselves. Take a deep breath. Don't let anxiety kind of be in the driver's seat in these moments and really attune to what it is your child needs, right? Um, The environment or the people around may need you guys to be quiet, but your child may not need to hear like, you know, that that teachable moment isn't necessarily when the sensory is like peaking, right? Right. Yeah. And so I find that like, again, with my second, he seems to be the more sort of sensory sensitive in this episode Mm -hmm. as I'm understanding it more. Um, He just wants, he wants a good old like bear hug, tuck away from everybody kind of like he just needs to kind of hide out for a minute. Mm -hmm. And then once he regroups, he jumps down and off he goes on his own and he just kind of will tuck away with me for a moment. Yeah, exactly. And that is his reset. Yeah. And it's so important to give it to him. And, you know, the other thing I say about this, I get this question a lot is when you're at the zoo, do you think every other mom, their kid has also tantrumed in the middle of TJ Maxx? I I joke TJ Maxx because my mom talks about this time where I was a little girl and I had a massive tantrum in TJ Maxx and she was humiliated and someone shamed her. And she talks about it to this day. And I, I think about that now with every time I'm sitting with a parent, because the truth is, I think we know as parents, so many parents have all, we've all been there. Everyone knows. Yeah. Everyone knows my kid has laid down. So if a parent is looking at you at the zoo and your child is having a massive tantrum, try to shift it into your mind to, oh my goodness, they're judging me. They think I'm a horrible mom to, oh, they have sympathy. They've been here before they understand. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's such an interesting, like how much, um, like mom and especially young children and toddlers, like the regulation is so in tune with each other. You know, the more Mm -hmm. one escalates, the more the other escalates. So I often work with moms a lot on just kind of regulating their self and their own anxiety so that they can be like present and attuned to baby because for every reaction our kid has or every, you know, behavior or everything that goes on, we have our own reactions that creep up inside of us, right? So it's, uh, and this is why I think mother motherhood and, and why I have this podcast is like, it is a lot. It's a lot to manage. Before we had these little ones, we had ourselves to manage and just, we only had to control our own reactions. And now we've got these little dependents and we're not only kind of regulating ourselves, but we're also to some degree regulating them as well. So. And kind of yeah. like piggybacking on that one question that I think I, I get a lot is if a child is seeking sensory or is having has some sensory needs. Is there something that I did wrong as a parent? I get that question all the Mm. time. And it really breaks my heart every time because we all develop so differently. There's always things we can do to help, but I always say to parents, release that guilt right now. Just by thinking about what can I do, you're already on the right track and you're already making change. And we, yeah. no one is perfect. And the truth is we all have very different sensory systems. And there's a lot of things that go into how our sensory system develops. So it's never a parent's fault. And I would never use that word. Yeah. And like, 
in motherhood in 2020, like you cannot be an OT and a therapist and a pediatrician, like your mom, you don't have all these specialties to know all these things all the time. We're going to get it wrong. We're going to miss things. We're not always going to understand. And that's okay. Like we're human. We're one person, you know, and sometimes maybe we miss that our child had some sensitivities or sensory challenges, or maybe we missed that. I don't know, our kid had vision problems and couldn't and had some reading struggles in the beginning as a result or whatever the case Mm -hmm. may be. Um, we're human. We're not all of these specialists wrapped into one person and, and we're out here, everyone's doing their best. And, you know, sometimes we're going to make mistakes or, or have regret or guilt over decisions that we've made. Um, but we're human and we're doing the best we can and it's a journey. So yeah. One other thing that I, I, I think about, um, and I've had conversations with other therapists and behavior therapists and also parents is when children are in these tantrum meltdown or kind of oversensitivity moments, uh, like a traditionally behavioral model would kind of be like ignore the behavior to extinguish it. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, more now I'm gravitating towards like feeding that need and making the connection. And I'm just curious your thoughts on like, if you've got a toddler and you're out, you know, at this group event or a toddler or preschooler or whatever, and they're having a meltdown, um, like, how do you, like, how do you walk parents through that? Like, would you, like, is it rewarding? I guess, okay, flat out, frankly, mm-hmm. the question, is it rewarding to hug and embrace during like a behavior? Like, let's say Johnny just went and destroyed the tower and then he comes to mom in tears because the other kids were mad at him. Um, and and some parents in like a traditional behavioral therapy might see that as rewarding negative behavior sometimes. Do you see what I mean? Great question. I love this question. Okay. Yeah. So let's break this down a little bit. So you're right. You know, we don't want to reward bad behaviors, but why Johnny may have broke that tower is because he needed that input or kind of like what you were saying with your son he wanted to play with the other boys and didn't know how. So when Johnny came to me, I would say, oh, I see you broke their tower. They're really upset. I wonder why that happened. Hmm. I think maybe you wanted to play with those friends and you didn't know how. So you broke the tower. Or I think maybe your body, that breaking the tower felt really good on your body. But I noticed it didn't feel good to your friends. I wonder what else we could have done to help. How else could our body get that feeling? How mm-hmm. else could have we played with them? And then say, I see you're really upset because your friends are really upset. How can we calm our body? And then should we go over and help rebuild the tower with our friends? What do we need and how can we fix this situation? So I really try to s- switch the language to help yeah. the child understand why they did it and what yeah. the reaction can be next time. I personally don't do, you know, a shaming model or anything like that. That's very much like, no, this isn't okay. But like rather, a discipline type of like disciplining the behavior type of thing. Right. I much more try to help, especially when they're little, help yeah. a child to understand why they did it. Behavior is communication. Totally. So if they're communicating through that behavior, let's help. They don't understand that they're communicating. Let's help them understand they're communicating and why they did it. And as parents, let's try to understand what they're communicating to us. Yeah, this is very in line with Dr. Dan Siegel's research. I don't know if you're familiar with him at all. Um, and he writes uh, Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline. And I love no drama discipline because it's exactly what you just described. It's not being of this rigid mindset that we have to discipline what we would think of as like, you know, negative or socially negative behavior, but that it's really about trying to see behavior as communicating a need to, you know, the parent or the friend or the situation. Um, And that's what I've tried. And that's where I've really learned to kind of step in with this, my son that I've been talking about, because he has displayed more behavior behavior than more any of my other sons so far. And if I were to just see the behavior as a negative thing and be disciplining it all the time, he'd be getting in trouble all the time. And I would see him as a very challenging 
boy to work with. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but since like adopting this mentality and the no drama discipline and being able to see it as communication with me of something that he needs and trying to just like pause in the moment and tune into what is he trying to get at here? Like what's going on in the situation, being curious, kind of asking questions and not jumping to just discipline the behavior. I learn and am in tune with what actually he's trying to accomplish in that situation so that him and I can problem solve together how we can get that need met in a way that he's not going to get in trouble for or his friends aren't going to be mad at him about or things like that. Yeah. And how much more effective is that for both of you? Incredibly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually going to be doing a recording uh, next week about this style of discipline because I think it's so important. And for someone who's come from a quite like a CBT behavioral background, Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a very different mindset, but one that I like wholeheartedly kind of have adopted and approached because it's just been so effective even with my boys. And and it's not about letting kids kind of like get away with murder. Like you're still setting the boundary with little Johnny pushing over the tower that, you know, no one really liked that. You know, that didn't feel good for you. That didn't feel good for the the kids that were playing. You didn't really get invited into the group to play. Like it didn't have the result you wanted, you know? Mm-hmm. So you're still teaching the lesson and setting the boundary, but it doesn't have to be in such a like consequencing or discipline type of a way. Yeah, 100%. And so many times what kids are communicating, they're communicating about what their sensory needs are. Not always, but a lot of times. Yeah. And if we truly understand what the sensory system is and what sensory seeking and what all of this means, that it means more than our tactile bins we find on Pinterest. Yes. Yeah, we'll understand our own kids' bodies so much more and start to view it as, oh, this isn't a behavior. His body needed that sensory input. And that's one of my biggest passions. And I, I do a lot of trainings at schools. And after the training, I have so many teachers will come up to me and they're like, oh my gosh, I've been saying no to this child. And we've been disciplining this child. This child really needs more sensory input. This child needs more movement this child doesn't have the postural ability to sit on carpet during circle time. So he's running all around the room. I never even thought to think about that. I just thought it was behavior. I never thought to put him in a cube chair at the carpet and give him the support. So all of these little things that are not obvious at all, you know, I have a doctorate in this, this is my life, but most people don't know about it. Yeah. Have a massive impact on who we are, how we function in the environment, at home, at school, everything that we do. Yeah. Yeah. And like you just said, like you have a doctorate in this. This is what you study. This is what you do day in and day out. When moms, you know, birth their babies, they aren't handed a doctorate in all the specialties they need to know in order to serve each individual child. And like, just to say, I have three different boys that are different. I'd require three different doctorates of different like information and knowledge to be able to manage each of their needs, you know, to the perfect degree. But it's not about getting it perfect. And there's, and the amazing thing about us as humans is that we are resilient beings. We can get it wrong. Like if you think about your own life, like I know the hardships and the like high conflict divorce that my parents went through and the challenges that I went through, if nothing else, those things made me stronger and I would never strip them from my, you know, who I am and my past. So like there's room to get it wrong. We're resilient. It shapes a grit in us and that's okay. And then when we learn and when our eyes are open to things that we can do, then we step in and we help in the ways that we learn over time. And there's room for that, you know. For sure. And getting it wrong is beautiful. And I'll even bring you like to get it wrong within play because yes, yes. You know, I think it's so natural and so many of us are perfectionists and especially in today's society, I feel like, you know, there's a lot with social media and a lot of things about being perfect out there. Right. And so when our child is playing, we have this automatic instinct to, Oh, they're doing that wrong. I'll just show them how to do it. Right. Yes. But what you just said, you learn from your hardships. So those hardships can come, not necessarily hardships, but mistakes. If I fall, guess what? I just learned something about my body. Yeah. Of course, you're never going to let your child fall to the point where they're hurt. But 
if I try something, you know, if we're building an obstacle course or we're building something and we're doing play and I know it's, it's not going to work, I'll still let the child go through that motion of let's try it. Let's see if it works. Yeah. Rather than correcting because they need to feel that themselves. They tried it. So when a child's at the park and trying to cross some new play structure, rather than telling them, put your hand here, body, left hand here, right hand here, leg here, this is how you do it. Let them figure, explore their body. Try to get over that new structure themselves before jumping in to help them. And then maybe give them one cue at a time. Like, oh, try to put that hand on the red block. Yeah. And let them slowly plan through it. It's okay if they make mistakes and they may make mistakes and they may get to the top and be stuck. And then you help them because that's what we do as parents and teachers and educators and therapists. But exploring through our body is so important. Yeah. Yeah. I think of even like with my sons wrestling to put on their socks or like do up their zippers, you know, um, it can, their tension and their struggle with that task can escalate my anxiety. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, I like, I just need to keep the morning routine going. This is taking too long. I should just do it, you know? Um, but I've really been learning and consciously mindful that like they need to struggle with that task. Like they need the tension. They need to have the grit and the determination to try and try and try until they learn the skill that it is they're trying to develop. And it's important for us to allow that tension and that little bit of discomfort for them to wrestle with it. And if they don't develop that when they're younger, they're going to have a really hard time in school and university and things like that when they're older, having that resilience to like fail and get back up and try again, right? Yeah. And it's so so interesting that you say that because one thing that comes to mind for me is, you know, if a child really learns to keep trying, keep trying, keep trying when they're little, then all of a sudden they're in high school and maybe they're a gymnast or they're on trying out for the varsity basketball team and it doesn't go as exactly how they expect. Yeah. If they know, if they have that muscle to keep going and know, okay, it didn't work out. I'm going to practice. I'm going to keep trying. They're going to feel so much better about themselves when they do accomplish the goal versus... If they say, you know what, I'm used to things kind of going how I want. I want this to be perfect. I'm just going to quit. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so true. Yeah. So kind of helping a child starting really, really young. And I love what you said about the socks and, you know, the self-care stuff, because we talk about this with parents. Like, have you given them the opportunity to learn to cut? Have you, right. you, like, it's okay if they don't cut perfect. Have you given them the opportunity to learn these things? And sometimes parents will look at me and be like, oh, didn't think about that. No, I yeah. haven't. And yeah. in the morning before school, you may not always have time to let your sons put on their own socks because you're trying to get out the door and that's okay. But on a Saturday when you're really no rush, why not take the extra minutes? And sometimes that might mean you taking an myself as a therapist, when I'm really trying to push through this with a child, I have to do this too. And we're in the middle of a session and we're really working on something and it's really challenging. I've started counting to 10 in my head really slowly before I give any cues. And I started this quite a few years ago and it's really, really helped. And something that I now tell parents, if they're trying to get that sock on, when you say, okay, I've waited long enough. Now I'm going to jump in to help. Stop. Slowly count to 10. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. Then decide, do they need the help or are they almost there now? Yeah, that's so good. I love it. I love it. And it's so true. And I think about all the different things like that we jump in and do just out of, you know, keeping the household running and things. And we're overlooking these opportunities. And I've sat back and I've watched, you know, my son, like he's gone to grab a step stool and he's done all these things, like the resourcefulness that they will come up with on their own to get to the goal. Obviously when it's safe and when you're there and you can support them through it, um, they're resourceful and they figure it out and they problem solve. And that's such an important skill for them to learn through their play, through their daily routine with us and us to be able to kind of sit back and do that count to 10 and allow them to foster it is so important. Allie, 
I like, I'm so blown away by our conversation today. I'm so appreciative that you took the time to join us. So insightful. You are going to be my go-to for all things sensory. I'm going to bring <laughs> you back for sure. I loved it. And uh, why don't you tell people where you hang out online? What have you got going on? I know your website and everything, your Instagram page. Yeah. So you can follow us at play. It's the number two progress. We have an Instagram where I post a ton of different videos about the sensory system and different parenting techniques. Um, we also have a new toy line that we just launched. It's called the Animagnons and you can find it at play2progress.com. And there we have all of our programs and everything that we do up online. So feel free to kind of check it out, reach out, let me know if you have any questions. We love when parents reach out. So anything you need. Yeah. And I'll link all of your stuff in the show notes as well. So people can just click the show notes in the description and they'll, they'll find you. They'll link straight through to you. Thank you again. I really appreciate your passion and what you're doing. I've learned so much from you today and I can't wait to chat again soon. Awesome. Thank you so much, Erica. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that we're discussing today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job. Settling is not an option for Everything me. I desire is already mine. What if you can have it all? <laughs> because every day is for the girls. Hello, hello. Welcome to For the Girls podcast, hosted by Victoria Alario, For the Girls Who Want More. Listening to For the Girls will have you ready to raise the bar, stop settling for the bare minimum, and start believing you can have it all and step into the 2.0 version of you. You can catch a new episode of For the Girls every Monday across all podcast platforms. Until next time, girls.